As we turn now to God's word, read and proclaimed, would you join your hearts and minds with me in prayer? Almighty and all-loving God, we thank you that you do hear our prayers. You incline your ear towards us and are ready to listen. Even more eager are you to listen than we are to speak. But God, we also know that we need to hear from you. So we pray this day that you would speak to us, that you would speak through your word, that you would speak to our hearts that word that we need to hear. So God, as we turn to your word read and proclaimed, we pray that you would speak and that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So baseball is an odd sport. I know, it's, we should be talking about football. It's, it's Super Bowl Sunday. Quick poll. Who is rooting for the Rams? Who's rooting for the Patriots? Who is not really rooting for the Rams, but is rooting f against the Patriots? <laughs> Who is here for the commercials? <laughs> but in instead of uh, dwelling on football today, we are going to talk about baseball. Because in baseball, everything is measured every single action. In baseball, they count everything. They have all of these bizarre stats. If you wanted to know which second baseman has been a part of turning the most double plays in baseball history, you can find that out. If you want to know which left fielder has walked, in the mo the, has walked the most in outdoor ballparks north of the Mason-Dixon line, you can find that out. Because in baseball, everything is counted, everything is captured. There isn't a better sport for stats nerds than baseball, and there isn't a sport more obsessed with data than baseball. And yet, baseball is the only area in life where if you fail six times out of ten to do the most basic thing, they'll put you in the Hall of Fame. At its core, baseball is about a guy trying to hit a ball with a bat, right? That is what baseball is. That's the most fundamental part of the game. But the very best baseball players of all time, the ones who are in the Cooperstown Hall of Fame, fail to do that most basic, most fundamental thing six times out of ten. Trivia time. Anyone know who holds the record for best batting average in their career? Not Ted Williams. Wow. No. Not Babe Ruth. Wait, wait, how are we counting here? Ty Cobb. Home run? Ty Cobb. Oh, Ty Cobb. Ty Cobb with uh, 366-2. Anyone know the best? Yeah, there's a certain number of at-bats you have to have. I, I don't know. Anyone know the record for the best batting average in a single season? Not Ted Williams. Hugh Duffy. Never heard of the guy. Thank you, Google. Uh, he hit 439 one year. But again, 439, great, best ever. Still means five and a half times out of ten, 
he's not getting the job done. So last week, we handed out these, these sheets. I'm going to nab one, and I'll pass around some others for those who weren't here uh, and, and would like to start trying. These sheets that had eight boxes in it that corresponded to the folks who lived in the residential units uh, closest to you. And we tried to see if we could identify the names of the people closest to our home. And could we identify a basic fact about the people who live in those homes? And could we identify a deep fact about the people who live there? And I think for a number of us, it made us realize that we do not know our neighbors. Did anyone go home this week on fire to get this sheet completely filled out? Did anyone go home this week meaning to talk to at least one new neighbor? Were you successful? Or did it slip your mind when the busyness of the week took over? Fear not, my friends, this is a place of grace. Neighboring isn't a pass-fail course where you either get it all right or you fail. Our goal in this isn't to go from zero to perfection in 4.3 seconds. Rather, our goal is to get a little more intentional, to get a little better at seeing our neighbors, to maybe fill in one more square or one more line week after week. In that, we are like baseball. Because as we go about our daily lives, the day-in, day-out busyness, we can lose track of things. We come home from church on Sunday morning thinking that we should be a better neighbor. And we will as soon as we clean up the house a little bit. But then it's time to cook dinner. And then the kids' lunches need to be packed for tomorrow. And we need to get ourselves set up and ready to go for the week. But it's okay. We'll make sure to say hi to our neighbors tomorrow before we go to work. And then Monday comes, and the emails come in, and the meetings run over, and someone is grumpy, and we go home after a long, tired day, and we just want to relax. The neighbors will still be there tomorrow. Before we know it, it's Thursday afternoon, and we are starting to think about our weekend plans. Saturday, the kids have sports. Friday night, we have a club meeting or that thing with friends. Saturday evening, the family just needs some time together. And here it is, Sunday morning, we are back right where we were last week. The only way to break this cycle is with intentionality. The Gospel of Mark moves at a frenetic pace. The most used word, uh, one of the most used words in Mark's Gospel is the word immediately. Jesus does everything immediately in Mark's Gospel. He's constantly on the move, always going from place to place. And in Mark, Jesus bursts onto the scene at age 30. We get no Christmas narrative. Jesus just comes as an adult at age 30. And he's only doing his public ministry for three years. Think about that. God incarnate has three years to teach humanity everything they need to know before he's killed on a cross, and you think you are busy. <laughs> Mark's gospel is the shortest of all the gospels. All this is to say is that if there's ever a gospel that doesn't have time for distractions, it's Mark's. And yet even in Mark's gospel, we get this story in chapter 5. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, 
Catch that? He's again crossing, the, crossing like multiple times. He's always moving. A large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. Because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you ask, Who touched me? But Jesus, looking around to see who had done it, then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. So Jesus is going about his teachings, and again, this is God incarnate trying to teach us how to be good, loving people, the people that God made us to be. This is important work Jesus is doing. And this guy Jairus interrupts Jesus. And honestly, I can't blame Jairus. He has a real problem that he thinks Jesus can solve. His daughter is dying, and he wants her healed. And Jesus stops what he's doing and goes with Jairus. And in the middle of all this, a woman comes up to touch Jesus. She too has a real problem that she needs Jesus to solve. But Jesus is literally on a mission to save someone's life. Surely he can't stop what he's doing in order to help her. What if he stops and in that time he spends with this woman, the young girl dies? And at some point, doesn't Jesus need to get back to his teaching? There's a lot of competing demands on Jesus' time in these short, uh, in these few verses. But the woman touches Jesus and Jesus feels something. He felt power go out of him. Which, if that's true, then it probably means the woman's problem has been solved. She's probably been healed. So couldn't Jesus just continue down the road on his mission to save the little girl? But no, that's not what happens. Jesus stops. He said, who touched me? He wanted to see this woman. He wanted to talk with her. In this short story, we see Jesus literally time and again making time for people, prioritizing human connection over tasks. He wanted to hear Jairus' problems. He wanted to connect with the woman who needed healing. He sought out personal relationships. And on some level, don't you think Jesus had to be intentional about it? He had to stop. He had to notice. He had to hear Jairus. Give him the opportunity to be heard. He had to notice that power had left him and stop in his tracks to connect with that woman. With so many competing demands on his time, on his person, Jesus intentionally stops to connect. And as followers of Christ, Jesus calls us to do the same thing. Quickly switching gears and gospels to Luke chapter 10. 
As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered. You are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken from her. We transition from a story about Jesus taking notice of people, even in the midst of intense busyness, to a story that juxtaposes two ways of being when attempting to show hospitality. Jesus goes to the house of Mary and Martha, a common occurrence throughout the Gospels. Mary hangs out with Jesus while Martha is doing all the things that need to be done. And who hasn't been there? You're hosting a party or a dinner, and someone is making sure that all the food is being replenished, all the guests have drinks, trash is getting taken away, empty dishes are taken back to the kitchen, and then the other host is doing nothing. Or at least nothing helpful. Simply talking to people or even watching the game. Has anyone ever been there? In this case, however, Jesus does something surprising. Rather than tell Mary that she really ought to help out because hosting is kind of a big job and if you haven't noticed, Mary, Peter's glass is empty and Martha is busy refreshing the crudite, Jesus tells Martha that Mary is in the right. Mary is focusing on people, on the relationships. Peter can get his own drink. I gave him legs. You get it? Because... Through Jesus, everything was created, even and especially Peter's legs. That was not good. There will always be tasks. There will always be more and more and more tasks. The trash will always have to go out. The sink will always be full of dishes. There will always be a dozen emails to answer. There will always be more and more and more to do. Perhaps Mary was simply oblivious. But Jesus didn't th doesn't seem to think she was. In his reply, Jesus seems to say that Mary is being intentional. She is taking notice of the people in her midst and is tending to the relationships. She is making time, making space for people. Now I know there are some of you out there who might say, yeah, she gets to do that because Martha is taking care of everything else. I'm a task person, so I get it. What I hear Jesus saying to Martha is that she needs some intentionality in her life. She needs to be intentional about prioritizing those relationships. She needs to see the people. She needs to make time to be with people. How quickly in our lives, as we try to be merry, making time to get to know our neighbors, can we become Martha, worrying after many things? And all of those things are important. All of those things need to get done. Those tasks are never going to stop, and if we are waiting for the task to stop before we connect and interact with our neighbors, it will never happen. The only way we are ever going to do it is through being intentional. The only way we are ever going to begin to put the one needful thing first is through intentionality. And I have four strategies for you to make neighboring, to make building relationships with those closest to you a priority. The first is the always rule. 
The always rule is simply what it implies. Anytime you're outside and see one of your neighbors outside, you always say hello and attempt a conversation. Always. Every single time. Why always? Because here's what happens. Or at least what happens to me. I mean to talk to my neighbors, ask them how they're doing, ask how the spouse or how the kids are doing, ask their names, etc. And I'm getting in my car in the morning to leave for work and I see someone else doing the same. And I think I should say hi, ask a few questions, but I'm running late. And I really need to get to work. They'll be out later, I'm sure. And then I'm coming home. And there they are again. But it's been such a long day. I just want to get inside, change into some comfy clothes, and relax for a little bit. Or get dinner started because I'm kind of hungry. And tomorrow, yes tomorrow, that's the day that I'll say hello. And then three years go by and you don't know one distinctive thing about your neighbors. The always rule is in place to prevent that. The always rule is in place to overcome the inertia of busyness and the I can do it later that so quickly overtakes us. So put in place the always rule whenever you're out and see a neighbor, always say hi. Because if you endeavor to do something always, you'll do it at least a few times. Second thing is plus ones. In the book, The Neighboring Church, uh, Rick Russ and Brian Mavis talk about a concept they picked up from missionaries serving in the Middle East. They were frustrated that their work was not turning into a rash of conversions, the difficult part of measuring your ministry against the book of Acts. Another missionary told them to envision every person as walking a journey from not knowing Christ to knowing Christ, and then put that journey onto a number line. Zero represents someone acknowledging Jesus as Lord and Savior. Folks in the negative are people that don't know Jesus. And folks in the positive are the ones that are growing in grace and discipleship. There are lots of people for whom a step toward Jesus would not result in their conversion. But it is a step in their journey. It might be moving from negative 98 to negative 97, but that's still a plus one. When it comes to neighboring, it is going to be a process. You won't go from not knowing a thing about your neighbors to being their best friends because your pastor preached a couple sermons. The goal for us ought to be to focus on and claim plus ones. Helping a neighbor shovel her sidewalk is a plus one. Having a conversation at the playground is a plus one. Being present in your neighborhood enough to know who and what to pray for is a plus one. I'm not asking you to go from zero to hosting a block party every Friday night. But I am asking you to think about what the plus ones would be in your neighborhood and in your relationship. The third thing, fit neighboring into your normal rhythms. None of us has enough time to add more into our lives. Let's admit that. The goal of this series isn't to overwhelm you with all the things you should be doing, and boy, if you just love Jesus enough, you would be doing. I get that no one sits around being like, I'm so bored, I could go say hi to people in my neighborhood, but I just don't want to. I enjoy being a grumpy Gus. It's not a desire thing, it's a time thing. And I also get that we could plan and execute the best party the world has ever seen and our neighbors still probably wouldn't come because they're busy too. I don't want to disrupt your rhythm and we know disrupting our neighbors' rhythms won't work. But here's what might. 
Looking at your normal rhythms, your weekly, monthly, and yearly rhythms, and seeing how neighboring might fit into them. For instance, say your family does a monthly taco night. How would it be to triple the taco recipe and invite some families from the neighborhood over? Voila, Taco Tuesday. Or say you live close to an elementary school and families pass your house when walking to school. On the first Friday of the month, could you brew some extra coffee and invite families to take a coffee break on their way to school? Do you love to play games? Would you like to play a game? Could you host a regular game night? Does your family do puzzles together? Could you invite others to do that? Do you block out every Tuesday evening to watch This Is Us? Or every Monday evening to watch The Bachelor? Yes. Uh, or Thursday nights to watch Survivor? How about seeing if anyone else in your neighborhood does the same thing and hosting a weekly watch party? Or with sports? The opportunities are endless, but the key is looking at the things you make time for and seeing if you can't make space for others to join you. And last, go slow, just go, go big. This last idea is where we'll end, and it's not so much an idea as it is simple encouragement on how to move forward. Oftentimes in our world and our society, the un we live by the unspoken rule, go big or go home. Either do it all right and perfect and be a model for everyone everywhere, or don't even try. So many of us are novices when it comes to neighboring, and if the options are go big or go home, we're more apt to go home. Going big is beyond intimidating. Rather than that, I offer this mantra. Go slow, just go, go big. Go slow. If you're just getting started, if you really struggled with the neighborhood grid exercise, start by trying to make a few more acquaintances in your neighborhood. Start by practicing the always rule and force yourself to have some conversations. Don't try to host a board game party just yet. Go slow and learn some people's names. Once you've gotten going, just go for a bit. Don't think you're going to have to host all the holiday parties. But maybe try one. What's your favorite holiday? Start there. Leverage the relationships you have built to do something that connects people in your neighborhood. Maybe it is the morning coffee break. Maybe it's a game night. Maybe it's neighborhood fireworks. And once you've gotten things going, then it's the time to think big. Maybe that's when you start a neighborhood small group or book club or running group. Maybe that's when you start to organize routine neighborhood get-togethers. All of this is a process. A process that begins with intentionality. A process that begins with seeing the people that are around you. And trying just a little bit more to love them like Jesus does. Let us pray. Almighty and all-loving God, you call us to be intentional, to see people around us, to get to know people around us, to tend to relationships. Just as your son tended to relationships, just as your son made time for people and was intentional about being in relationship with people. Help us, God.
Help us to see the people closest to us, the people around us. Remind us. Cause us to become more intentional about tending to those relationships. Give us a heart and give us compassion to see and know and love our neighbors as your children. All this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.